Hey y'all, welcome to Footnotes in Witness. My name is Deborah J. McKinsey, and this is the podcast where we study the Bible to see Jesus rightly and find him in our own story. Let us be faithful witnesses to his character and glory. So last time we started talking about how we're going to study the disciples, the apostles, Jesus's crew, and what that is going to help us see about who Jesus is and his character. So we're going to dive right in. We're going to start with Matthew, the tax collector. I have found so much value in getting to know these guys as individual people because I've seen so much about who they are and like how the dynamics of this group would have worked. And one of the people that I think really shows that is Matthew, the tax collector. So he was a contemporary of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to these events. He lived in the first century AD. His Greek name means gift of God, and he lived in Capernaum. Now, he collected taxes for the Romans from the Jewish citizens. So this is kind of where like being married to a history nerd has been supremely helpful. (laughs) So my husband loves history and loves medieval history and knows quite a lot about it. And actually, when we first got married, he wouldn't have called himself a believer. And it was so helpful, actually, because what he did when I first started going back to church was he asked me a lot of questions, like, how does this justify with all the other nations who have the same story, just from that history perspective. And growing up in the church, I never really questioned those things. I was like, well, that's just the way that it is. And that wasn't good enough. And so that forced me to like delve a little bit deeper into some of these things, which was actually super beneficial, because then I had to actually find answers and like, think about why the Bible is true and how is the Bible put together compared to other historical narratives and text and why can we trust it? And so from that, I learned a lot more about the Romans and the kind of the nation that they were in. And it actually gave me a really good historical context for what the disciples lived through and what it meant for their like social interactions. So when I was starting to look into Matthew, the tax collector, That was um, really helpful to understand kind of how Romans occupied other nations. So they would come in with military force. Um, They had a huge army. They had lots of weapons and they were very good at what they did. They were super organized. And so when they would go in and take over a nation, they would try to leave a bit of their that culture like intact. And that actually helped them occupy more cultures because then the day-to-day was still being run by the individual culture there. But what they did do was then impose their taxes. So they wanted the local people that they occupied to pay taxes to them. And that funded future military campaigns and the roads and aqueducts and irrigation and things like that. So for the Jewish citizens, for the Israelites, somebody who was a tax collector was kind of ostracized from their society. They were seen almost as like a traitor because they are working with the enemy to take money from your people. And so this was definitely not something that people would have said like, oh, well, you know, like he's doing the best that he can. Like there wasn't a lot of mercy and grace put into this. So the Romans also were not going to be accepting of the tax collectors for that culture because they overcame that culture. They occupied them. So they looked down on the cultures that they occupied. The Romans definitely felt like they were better than. So what that 
has for Matthew is this like in-between place where he's not really accepted in Roman society and he's not really accepted in the Jewish society. He's kind of ostracized from both. So when we see his occupation and we start to think about the realities of what that day-to-day meant, now we understand why it's important that we are told his occupation. He's first mentioned in Matthew 9, 9. And don't forget, I am going to always, any scripture that I refer to, I'm going to make sure that it's down in the show notes. But if you are a note taker, hopefully I don't talk too fast. And if I do, you can always slow it down on your podcast catcher. So he is the recognized author of the book of Matthew. And what he did that was kind of important and separate from the other gospels is that he wrote a lineage of Jesus Christ from Abraham to King David to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And that's found in Matthew 1. That's the very beginning of the book. And so we can kind of see right from the beginning of that lineage all the way through the book of Matthew, that Matthew is trying to prove Jesus's authority from Old Testament all the way from the law to the prophecies and through the Psalms and the prophets and the poems. So Matthew is really trying to intentionally prove that Jesus is the Son of God and has the authority to do the things that he did. And as an eyewitness, I think that was important to Matthew. He wanted to back up the authority and the sovereignty of what Jesus did. So we can see that that's what was important to Matthew. Only the book of Matthew actually explicitly says he's a tax collector. So I don't, I mean, we can't say for certain what that means. And this is kind of that ambiguous area of making observations is we can think about the culture, we can think about history and make uh, our own inferences. And those things are good. And sometimes they help give us a broader understanding. But my only caution to that is just to remember that you can be wrong. Like, We don't know everything and we can think things are very clear, but we weren't there. Like we can't ask Matthew why he wanted to make sure that, you know, he told everybody that he was a tax collector. It does seem like it was important to Matthew to let people know that, that it does give some context for the things that he experienced in the way that he probably, you know, interacted with the rest of the group. So that's an inference and those are good things. But just keep inferences and observations with that little just grain of salt in the back of your mind that, you know, you could be wrong, (laughs) which is sometimes a hard thing to do. But it also like gives you this humility. And once you've decided that you are correct about everything, then you usually aren't open for learning. And that probably isn't one of your characteristics. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to me talk about random details of apostles lives. So All that to say, (laughs) it's good to infer and to think about the history and the circumstances around stories, but always remember that we don't know everything and God may have something new to show you. So some questions that I thought of whenever I thought of Matthew, one of them directly is going to come from a, a free show, a free resource called The Chosen. You can download the app. They don't work through normal streaming services because they want to keep it free. And so what the chosen has done 
is they wanted to kind of go through the lives of the apostles and build up that storyline. There's definitely some artistic license in a lot of the storytelling, but that's what makes it a really good show. (laughs) But the way that they portray Matthew, they portray him as maybe being a little bit on the spectrum, maybe being really good at numbers, but having a hard time with social cues. And I was just really interested in why they took that approach. And then as I was studying about the apostles and thinking about Matthew, like he probably was really good with numbers, and that's why he was a tax collector. And he saw it very logically, like I can have a good career using the skills that I have. Why is this not acceptable? And why am I not included in the Roman society or my culture of the Hebrew society? And just kind of highlighted what that juxtaposition would have looked like in somebody's life. Now, once again, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know Matthew's character, but it's a really good thing to think about. Like, what's your idea of Matthew? Anytime somebody writes something and you read through their writings, you get a little bit of an idea of the author. And so Matthew writing a fairly large gospel, we can kind of see some things about his character. So what have you ever thought about Matthew? Another question to think about whenever you're thinking about Matthew is, do you relate to Matthew? Do you have a hard time fitting in with your culture? Maybe, maybe you know that you're supposed to do things a certain way in your culture, but you don't quite fit in. I have a lot of tattoos and I have had uh, crazy hair and mohawks and I absolutely love having black nails and that doesn't really fit in the like Bible teacher, homeschool mom, like sweet, like stay home and bake cookies persona. (laughs) And I've never quite, I've never quite fit in with whatever path I'm on. I'm always rubbing against the edges. And that's just for better for worse. That's how God made me. And so I tried to fit in in ways that I can, but the ways that I don't, uh, you know, pink nails is never my favorite go to. It's usually black. And I've had people at the nail salon be like, why would you want black nails, honey? Are you sad? I'm like, no, I just like black. So that's definitely not in any (laughs) real relation or extreme to what Matthew probably endured being ostracized from his society. But there are some ways that maybe you can relate to Matthew that you haven't thought of before. And because Matthew's account is so detailed, what does that say about his character? What can we kind of infer about his character with that? So that's Matthew, the tax collector. And we'll continue to talk about Matthew because his interaction with other people in the group can be very insightful. So especially when we get to Simon the Zealot, like how did these two guys end up in the same crew? And how is Jesus totally fine with that? And actually intentionally maybe made that And maybe Jesus intentionally put people together in his crew that were not necessarily going to get along. And I think that's really interesting about Jesus. So we'll definitely talk about that some more as we continue talking about the disciples. So next, I'm going to talk about Thomas, Doubting Thomas. That's usually what he's known as, and I think he's gotten a bad rap. So I want to talk about that 
a little bit. So the accounts of Thomas are going to be in the book of John. And so I'm just flipping over to those pages right now. (laughs) But if you have your Bible, you can look at that or on your Bible app, or just take note of the scriptures and look it up later. So Thomas lived in that first century. He was an eyewitness. He was there. And the Aramaic meaning of his name actually means twin. And he is referred to as Thomas the twin a couple of times. So just don't get thrown off by that. And Matthew 10.3 is the first time that he is mentioned. So like I said, the only accounts of Thomas are outside of the list of apostles are in the book of John. So we know him most from that story of doubting Thomas. And that account can be found in John 20 verses 19 through 29. And just to let you kind of like understand the situation there, the history, the backstory, the context, Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Now his disciples are accomplices. They're part of the crew that got in trouble. So they're kind of hiding out. They're trying to stay low, not kick up too much trouble. And they're all in a room except for Thomas. And it actually tells us that they're behind a locked door. So they haven't seen Jesus yet. They've seen the empty tomb and they know that he's not there. And so what this account shows us is that Jesus appears in the middle of the room behind a locked door and shows them his side and his hands where he was wounded through the crucifixion. And they believe and they're, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's awesome. So Thomas is not there. And when they tell Thomas about this event, hey, we saw Jesus, he appeared in this crazy room, like it was locked, it was awesome, this miracle, we witnessed it, right? They give their witness of what happened. And Thomas says, I I won't believe, like, I want the same thing that you had. I want to also feel his sides and put my finger in his wounds before I'll believe. And so Jesus does do that for Thomas eventually. So that's usually what we know about Thomas, that he doubted and Jesus was gracious and kind enough to meet him in his doubt and show him um, what he showed the rest of the apostles so that he could believe. But he also says like, man, it would be better if you could believe without seeing. The other two accounts of Thomas, I think, show a lot about his character and that this one moment doesn't define him. So we're going to be in John chapter 11, and it's verses 11 through 16. So this is kind of the scene. Jesus has been threatened, and he knows that he's in trouble. The disciples actually say to him, like, they're seeking to stone you. So they're hiding out. They're outside of town, Jesus and the apostles. And word comes to them that one of their besties, Lazarus, is very sick. And they say, like, should we go to him? What do we do? And so Jesus tries to tell them that Lazarus is actually going to die. He says he's asleep. And they say to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. But Jesus had spoken of his death, and they thought that they meant he was just taking rest. And Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus has been already perished, dead, and buried for a couple of days. 
But the apostles don't know that yet. What they know is that their friend is sick and they don't understand why Jesus isn't going to him because they know that Jesus can heal them. But Jesus had a bigger plan. So the apostles just really have no idea what's going on. So then Jesus says in 14, he tells the apostles, Lazarus has died. So this is what's happening. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe because he knows that he's going to perform this miracle and they're going to witness it. And so Thomas, in verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. So if you don't understand the context, that can seem like, does he mean we can die with Lazarus? Does that mean that we will die eventually with him? It it kind of feels disjointed from the rest of the story. So that's why it's really important to look at things in their whole context. Because what Thomas was saying is, Jesus said, we're going to go back into town. And they know that there's a risk of him being stoned if he goes back into town. And by stoned, I don't mean like having a good time and partying. I mean like people throwing rocks at you until you die, kind of stoned. Not a fun thing. And Thomas says, well, if that's Jesus's fate, let us go with him and we will die with him. So this shows this amazing loyalty that Thomas had for Jesus. And we kind of miss that whenever we talk about him just being a doubter. The other story about Thomas is in John 14. So just flip on over a couple of pages to John 14, and this is verses one through seven. So if you start to hear a song in the back of your head while I read this, then you and I grew up with the same CDs. But uh, this is where Jesus is talking, and he says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Thomas is seeking knowledge. He wants to follow Jesus, but he's humble enough to say, I don't understand what you just said. What does that mean? If we don't know where you're going, how can we follow you? And I think this shows like the humility and the desire to be with Jesus. Like Thomas didn't always have doubt. And we have these moments that are highs in our faith, and we have these moments that are low in our faith. And this is why it's so important to tell your story and to be honest with people, because both those highs and those lows are important. So for Thomas, from some of the historical documents of the time, and through the books of the Apocrypha, he is credited as being kind of a missionary to the Indian church, like to the country of India. And so the Indian Catholic Church um, still claims Thomas as the church's founding minister. And there are lots of different first and second century Christian books that claim this about Thomas. And he is also credited as building a lot of buildings in India, like churches and things like that. And so he's actually the patron saint of architects, carpenters, and masons. So there are things that we know about the apostles that are in scripture. And then there are mythologies, uh, histories, legends, assumed histories about the apostles that usually come from the books of the Apocrypha. So the books of the Apocrypha are books that were not included in our evangelical Bible canon. So basically, whenever it was decided, how are we going to make the evangelical Bible? 
they took lots of different books and letters and things like that and put them together. And the apocryphal books were considered for many different reasons, not up to snuff. They were not good enough to be part of the canon. There were discrepancies here and there, or this was a concern or all different kinds of reasons, but they were not included in the canon. And so what that means is the early traditions, so the Catholic traditions and the Orthodox traditions still include different books of the Apocrypha. And so that's where some of the legends come from. And that's where some of the histories come from. So when we talk about Andrew, there's actually like the Acts of Andrew, and that's the only source of information about his death. And so we we know a lot of things about the disciples and they're credited as being patron saints of different disciplines. And that's usually where that comes from. So depending on your faith tradition, you may not be familiar with icons and kind of the legends behind the apostles, because they are usually credited with something other than what's in our particular scripture of our evangelical Bible today. So that's something to like be aware of. And depending on your faith tradition can affect you in different ways. But I think it's kind of good that we know where these things come from. So if somebody says like, he's the head of the Indian church, and you assume that it's in your Bible, um, that's a wrong assumption. But there are historical claims in different historical documents that back that up in different places. So it's kind of this like mm, back and forth. Is it important? Is it not important? Your faith tradition will definitely tell you more about the importance of the saints as the apostles are called saints. And if you're in an in evangelical church today, it's probably not something that you've even ever heard of. So I'm not going to delve too deep into that right now. <laughs> but just so you're aware of that, and that that's kind of what comes up. Because as we move through the apostles, through the disciples, many of them have these backstories. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention them at least a little bit in our very short summary of the apostles and their life. So when we talk about Thomas, the first question that came to me was, what word describes your faith today? Is it doubting? Is it anger? Is it apathy? What is the word that would describe your faith today? This one is a hard one. And I think there's an answer that's honest. And I think there's an answer that's aspiring. <laughs> but I would encourage you to pray about it and think about what the honest answer is. And you don't have to share it with anybody. But I think it can really give you an idea of what your faith looks like right now. The other question I came up with was how would you feel to be only known as your weakest moment? Thomas is only known as his weakest moments. He's known as Doubting Thomas. Man, that must be so heartbreaking. <laughs> All of our pride and reputation and like, I don't want to be known as that. We see that he was also loyal, that he was striving after truth. But that's not what we know about Thomas. We usually call him Doubting Thomas. And so what would that feel like? In your faith walk, what's the lowest moment, your weakest moment? And what if that was the only way that people knew you? I've been in lots of different stages in my life, and there was a period where I was working with a Christian company, and that was probably the lowest time of my spiritual walk. And I know that those people don't know, they don't know me. 
of who I am today and what God has redeemed out of those things, the forgiveness and mercy, just the overwhelming mercy (laughs) that I received after that time period. But they knew me in my weakest moment. And that's probably what they think about me when they think of Deborah. And man, that can be really sad. So how would you feel to only be known from your weakest moment? So don't forget to subscribe or like or however you can keep track of this podcast, because the next time we are going to talk about Peter and Andrew brothers, and I think Peter is one of the most relatable disciples. We love his stories, and there are lots of them. So that's going to be super fun to get into. For now, I'm going to leave you with Hebrews 13 verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.